Well, good morning, everyone. This is a wonderful time of year. It's doubly wonderful for our family this Christmas because not only will we be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, our daughter Christine is getting married next Saturday. That's six days, right? I mean, it, it is coming, so our, our, our family is starting to gather, uh, grandkids are here, and it's just a, it's a ton of fun. Now, what this means is over the next six days, Rhonda's role, her responsibility, is to make sure all the wedding stuff happens. My role, my significant responsibility, is to keep my mouth shut <laughs> and to play with the grandkids. Now, that playing with the grandkids is the easy part. Now, one of the many things our family likes, I'm sure your families are like this, you guys are like this as well, is we love the Christmas lights at Christmas. You know, they're just so beautiful. So over the years, we've taken our kids driving to see the Christmas lights. I would preach on Christmas Eve, for example, and we'd go out and drive around for a little bit seeing all the lights. There's something that's just beautiful about these lights of Christmas. They tap in, in part, to our deep longing for beauty. Now, because we have this wedding, because we have all sorts of people that be coming in and out of our house, we have this massive infusion of lights outside our house, but especially inside our house. We have just become ComEd's favorite customer. <laughs> Not a good thing. Uh, so I put out lots of outside lights uh, this year, and I don't know how it is for you if you put up outside lights, but I often think when I'm done putting up these outside lights, Lord, uh, you know, this would be a good year to take me home so I don't have to do this again next year. <laughs> you know, I don't have to put these up. But, but I did, and they, and they look great. And then inside, man, we have lights wrapped in garland on our staircase, mantle wrapped around furniture, wrapped around a bathroom mirror. Pretty soon they're going to be wrapped around the toilets. Rhonda and I are going to be wearing them. I, I don't know. But there are lights all over uh, our house. We have a little Christmas village that is all lit up. It's just beautiful. We have multiple Christmas trees with incredible lights. We're ComEd's best customer. And these lights are just beautiful. Now, our two-year-old grandson from California, Elliot, has been with us since Thanksgiving. And Elliot cannot say lights. I mean, he's from California. He says, yikes. And so what he loves to do is come up to these lights and garland on the staircase where he can touch them. He gets really close, and he touches light after light. And then he doesn't just say, but he shouts, yikes, 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 yikes. And I've been watching this for, you know, a week or so now, and I realize this appreciation and fascination that a two-year-old has for Christmas lights doesn't ever go away as we age. I love them just as much as Elliot does. We love them as adults. We love these Christmas lights. Wherever you go around the world where Christmas can be celebrated openly, you will usually see lights. Now, why is that? Well, it's not because they're just decorative. It's because they're symbolic. They picture the essence of the Christmas story. 
I don't think it's overstatement to say of all the many truths, symbols, uh, uh, metaphors for Christmas, this statement by Jesus, I am the light of the world, uh, this metaphor is perhaps the most fundamental, foundational image that we have of Christmas. And if we don't grasp it, if we don't understand the meaning of this statement, uh, then I'm not sure we'll really grasp the meaning of all the other symbols all the other metaphors, all the other statements relative to Christmas. Now, how can that be? Well, think about it. The moment you walk into your apartment, your house, a room, the first thing you do is turn on lights before you can do anything else. And in the same way, you and I will never find our way in this dark, difficult world Unless we walk in the light Jesus brings and offers. I am the light of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus claims in John chapter 8. So grab your Bibles. Let's look at John chapter 8 and verse 12. We'll put it up here on the screen. Here's the complete sentence. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of light. Now today I want to do three things with this sentence, or these two sentences, this verse. I want to look at Jesus' assertion of the darkness. He asserts the reality, the existence of darkness. Then I want to look at Jesus' claim to be light. And I want to conclude by looking at his call on our lives. So another way to say it is we're going to look at the problem, the darkness. We're going to look at the solution, Jesus' claim. And then we're going to look at the response, his call. The response he is offering us. So let's start with the problem. Let's start with the, uh, the darkness. The problem, according to Jesus in this verse, is that the world is dark. And if we don't follow him, we will continue, continue to continue to walk in the darkness, no matter how many assets we have, no matter how well educated we are, no matter how great our experiences are, we are fundamentally walking in the darkness. Now, darkness in the Bible uh, involves two main components, evil and ignorance. Let's take evil. I mean, think about Jesus' day, the first century world that Jesus was born into at Christmas. Systemic political corruption. Rampant poverty, violence, oppression, racism, murder, uh, uh, abuse, all of it evil. And that first century world is no different than our world today. So there's evil, but in addition to that, there's also ignorance. Now, when the Bible talks about ignorance, it's, it's not talking about being uneducated. It's talking, in, in this context, Jesus is talking about having no cure, no solution, no ability to fix the problem of evil. And as we've seen for the last 2,000 years since Jesus uttered these words, millions and millions of people just flat don't care. So ignorance is relative to solutions. Now what I want to do is I, I want to go back to a 700-year-old Christmas prophecy, a, a Christmas prophecy that was given 
700 years before the advent or the birth of Christ that Brian just read as he was standing here lighting the second advent candle. So let's look at that again. It's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. Isaiah says, looking into the future, the people walking in darkness have seen a great, here it is, light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, when Brian did this reading, he was reading from Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah 9-2, and he says, this verse is fulfilled in me. I am the light that has dawned. And everyone was overwhelmed. How can this be? But there's more to this Isaiah passage because if we back up a couple of verses into the end of chapter 8, the prophet describes darkness. He describes what this darkness, this evil and ignorance looks like and what it's rooted in. So look at, uh, let's look at chapter 8. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth. Now notice the shift in focus, and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now do you see what's going on? Do you see what's going on here? <laughs> what is darkness? What does darkness look like? Well, in the second verse, in verse 22, right at the beginning, Isaiah tells us, it's looking to the earth. It's looking toward the earth. What does he mean? He means instead of looking to God for solutions, we look to humanity, we look to creation. We look to politics or economics or to our jobs or, or to our money or to our vacations or to a certain set of circumstances that we aspire to, a life of ease and comfort. We look to the earth. It's shopping horizontally for solutions that we will only find vertically. Vertically. It's cursing God, rejecting God, And looking to yourself, living horizontally, looking to circumstances. And this is why we are where we are today in our modern, secular, Western world. We have rejected heaven. We have denied the existence of God. And what do we do? We look toward earth. But Isaiah is saying something else here. He's saying the problem isn't just out there. The problem isn't with, just with others. The problem's in here. It's a heart problem before it's a behavior problem. And we have dark hearts, so we have dark behaviors. And so he uses the word enraged. This is what he's getting at when he says look to. They all point to the fact that Isaiah is talking about the human heart. And you say, no way, my heart isn't that dark. Uh, humanity's heart isn't that dark. Then I want to ask you, why is it that we hide things from the people we love the most? Why is this room a room full of secrets? 
Why is it that we say such awful things, think even worse things? Why are our hearts riddled with envy and restlessness and, and fear and, and, and anger? Why did God send the flood? Why did God destroy 6th century B.C. Israel and then again destroy 1st century A.D. Israel? Why did God send Jesus Christ to the cross? Darkness in here, all around us. And what is that darkness? It's evil and the inability to find any solutions because we're looking toward earth. Now that's the problem. Let's turn now and let's go to the solution. The solution is Jesus and his claim, I am the light of the world. This is a massive claim. So for example, in Genesis chapter 1, the very first thing God creates is what? It's light. In the next book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, at the end of the book of Exodus, we are told it was the light of the pillar of cloud by day, the light of the pillar of fire by night that guided Israel through the wilderness as Israel wandered in the wilderness before taking the promised land. We come to the Psalms, and the psalmist declares, the Lord is my light. His word is a light to my feet. And the prophets like Isaiah and others tell us over and over, a light is coming. They prophesy, promise, there is a light. It will be a light for Israel, it will be a light for the Gentiles, and it will be a light for the world. And then when we come to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, while there are a number of things we would like to be told about heaven that we're not told, one of the things we are told about heaven is there is no more darkness, no more night. Why? Because God himself is our light. God lights the entirety, the entirety of heaven. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is unequivocally claiming to be God. And he's saying all the promises, all the prophecies, all the symbols, all the metaphors, all the statements about light are fulfilled in me. It's a fundamental picture of who Jesus is. It's fundamental and central to the Christmas story. Now that's the biblical context. What I want to do now is narrow in on this um, immediate context here in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 where this statement is made. And we'll see this in a minute, but what I want you to know, when Jesus makes this statement, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. He's in the, the courtyard. And according to John chapter 7, this statement takes place either at the end or just after the end of what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths that refer to temporary shelters. 
Now the Feast of Tabernacles was Israel's seven-day celebration commemorating God's provision for Israel in the wilderness with food, shelter, and light. God's faithfulness, God's goodness. So as a result, during this seven-day festival, year after year, Jews would erect temporary shelters, booths, and live in them for the entire week, remembering the temporary shelters they lived in during the wilderness. And in addition, each night, especially the last night, they would light the candelabras in the temple. And the lights would be so radiant on this last night that Jewish tradition says all of Jerusalem was lit up. And it was just beautiful, and there was music, and there was dancing, and it was this huge celebration commemorating the pillar of the cloud and the pillar of fire. God lit their way. So look at John chapter 8 and verse 20. John tells us, he that is Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not come. Now what John is telling us is that Jesus is standing in the exact same spot where the candelabras had been lit. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the reality that these candelabras that your celebration point to. Jesus is saying, I am the pillar of fire. I am the Shekinah glory of God. I don't just light a city. I light the entire world. Now look at the last sentence again in verse 20. We have this sentence that we kind of toss off, yet no one seized him. Now why does John say that here? Well, it's not merely to, to demonstrate that Jesus is in God's hands, which he certainly is, but also to say, if you understood how huge, how massive, how counterintuitive and countercultural, Jesus saying in that exact spot, I am the light of the world, really was, then you would be stunned that no Jew seized him and killed him. He's telling us how important this significant, massive, this statement is. So now what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves, what does this metaphor mean? And I want to suggest three things. Jesus is claiming to be life, Jesus is claiming to be truth, and Jesus is claiming to be beauty. Let's start with life. Jesus claims to be ultimate, eternal life. Now look at the end of verse 12. Go back to verse 12. Notice the words. When, if you follow me, whoever follows me will have the light of life. Notice the connection. Life and light. Light and life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, just as our sun and its sunshine is our source of physical life, I mean, without the sun, no vegetation will grow. Without the sun and the sunshine, we will all freeze to death. Just as the sun and the sunshine is the source of all physical life, so Jesus is saying, I am the source of all spiritual life. I am the source of eternal life. 
So the sunshine you and I see, now here in Chicago, we hardly see any in December, January, February, March, April, and you know. But the sunshine other people experience is a metaphor for Jesus. God has given us a sun to give us a picture of Jesus. In other words, life was born at Christmas. Now, I had a pretty significant experience a couple weeks ago. I was in Paris. I was speaking for Greater Europe Mission. I was on the 10th floor of our hotel uh, overlooking the Eiffel Tower. It was about a six iron away, but if you play golf like me, it was more like a driver. But it, but it was pretty close. Let me show you a picture. This is this first picture. Here I am. Let's go back to that first one. Here I am speaking, and you can see how close we are to the Eiffel Tower. Uh, now, at, at a couple different points, I went out on the balcony, and I shot some of these pictures. Let's look at a couple of these pictures. Now, we're on the 10th floor. We're overlooking Paris, France. And I'm out on the balcony at, at one point, and this is when I had this experience. I, I, I'm looking in the distance at Notre Dame, Sacre de Cour, and, and I'm longing to know the history, to know the, the life, to experience all of Paris. I'm a history buff. Everything was just welling up in me, and I was just longing uh, to experience Paris. And while I'm longing, suddenly the Holy Spirit showed up. And that longing for Paris was replaced by the knowledge that the infinitely greater beauty and life that I long for is found not in Paris, but in Jesus. I mean, Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. I was overlooking the Eiffel Tower. I was overlooking all of Paris. I'm from Indiana. It was just beautiful. And in that moment, I was experiencing the presence of Jesus Christ in my life, the presence of the Spirit. I was experiencing union and communion, life in Jesus. And suddenly, Paris seemed small and insignificant in comparison. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, Jesus has said, I have come to give you life. But Jesus is also claiming to be truth, ultimate truth. Now think about it. Light, if you're in your car, light is what enables you to see the child playing in the road ahead, the very road you're driving down. Light reveals the reality. Light reveals the truth of the situation. The light reflects off the uh, child. It hits you in the retina, and the child is safe. Light has revealed the truth, and you stop. All other founders of the world's major religions claim to be moons. By that I mean they claim to reflect the glory of God. But when Jesus says, I am the light, 
Jesus is saying, I, I don't merely reflect God's glory, I am God's glory. I am the sun, not the moon. And in my light, you see the child, you see the truth. And without me, you may have a piece or two of truth, but you have no cohesive, you do not have truth. You have no ultimate truth. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, Jesus is claiming to be truth. Light reveals truth. But light also reveals beauty, right? Because it enables us to see. And we all long for beautiful families, beautiful friends. Uh, we long uh, to go on beautiful vacations, to eat in beautiful restaurants. We love beautiful music as we count it beautiful, beautiful art. We just have this longing uh, uh, for beauty and the joy that accompanies it. Uh, so Jesus is claiming to be beauty, and in claiming to be beauty, Jesus is claiming to be joy. And as a matter of fact, in the places around the world, say St. Petersburg, Russia, where there is hardly any sunlight, what happens? There's a huge incidence of depression and suicide. There's no light. Light reveals beauty. Light gives us joy. So you're longing for beauty, you're longing for joy. Jesus is saying it's fulfilled in me. I am the light. And I've quoted it before, but I think Augustine's statement is so profound. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Jesus is the life, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the beauty, Jesus is the joy. Now let's go on. Uh, 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 let's move to the end of this verse and to the response. We've looked at the problem, the solution, now we come to the response. What is the response Jesus is calling for? It's not just an intellectual agreement. It's not just saying, yeah, I'll go to church periodically because I believe God exists, or, you know, Jesus had some profound things to say. No, that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus is calling us to follow him. To believe in him in such a way that it changes our entire life from the inside out. To submit to his leadership and lordship. To submit to his sovereignty over our lives. His authority in our lives. To taste and experience his presence. Now, let me talk about Christmas presents for a moment. We all love to receive Christmas presents. But some presents are harder to receive than others, right? So say, guys, uh, you're married and, you, and your wife gives you a book and you open it up and the title of the book is 10 Ways to Overcome Your Selfishness. <laughs> you know, some gifts are harder to receive. Why? Because they force us to swallow our pride. Wow, I guess I have a problem with selfishness. No gift is harder to receive than the gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life offered in Jesus. It's free, but it costs you everything. And it demands you and I swallow our pride. Because Jesus is asking 
us to give up control and not follow our desires, our minds, and we will use our desires, we'll use our minds, but to follow him. And it's so very difficult because that journey never begins until we admit we are sinners, until we admit there is darkness in my heart. And we swallow our pride. We, we, we give up control. Now let me take this a step further. Why was it that at the very moment as we came to the end of Jesus' crucifixion, darkness fell over the land? Well, because God was making a statement. God was painting a picture. And the picture is that in Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus was descending into our darkness. He was taking our darkness upon him that he might give us light. I am the light of the world. But the only way you and I can ever get to this light is understanding that Jesus descended into your darkness. And took all your sins, all your dysfunction, all your brokenness, all your anger and hate and on and on. And he took it upon himself. And he hung on the cross and he died. And at the end as he was saying, as he, at the end as he was dying, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he experienced separation, darkness. For you. Now, if what Jesus did, and as I, I talk about giving up control, scares you, maybe threatens you, makes you uncomfortable, I, I want to say to you, I want to encourage you, the reason for that reaction is because the light is dawning in your heart. But if you're sitting here, and you're thinking about Jesus taking on the darkness for you, descending into the darkness, and you frankly don't care, then the light is not dawning. And I want you to plead for grace and mercy to see the wonder of what Jesus has done. Light was born at Christmas. Life, truth, beauty, and joy, it's yours for the asking. Come to Jesus. Walk with him. Whoever follows me, whoever, whoever, whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, so often I come to your word, I come to metaphors um, like light, and I just glance over them, skip over them. And Father, the truth is, this is how we all tend to live our lives. And I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would just be overwhelmed by the wonder of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that you, God, would take us and you would begin to piece our lives back together. So instead of restlessness, there would be rest. Instead of anger, there would be joy. Instead of hate, there would be love. God, we can't do this. We're not equal to this. 
Christmas means, Father, we can't save ourselves. Would you save us from ourselves? Thank you for what you have given us in Jesus. In his name, amen.